Hello, this is Fee. Welcome to the latest episode of The Healing Place. So with it being uh, May being uh, Mental Health Month, I thought it was very important that we talk about, of course, mental health. Um, so for the most part on my show, I, I have, I talk about my mental health uh, traumas and what I had to go through and to get to where I am. And then I usually bring on a, I'll bring on a, a guest or two here and there just to, so that you get other perspectives, um, primarily female. But I thought it was very important that we talk about our male species, because just like there is a lot of women out there that are dealing with trauma, there is many more men out there. And, you know, the way society works, it's really kind of screwed up in some ways. So it's like, you know, it's okay for women to show emotion and to live in their truth sometimes and stand up and be emotional. Um, But when it comes down to men, men aren't allowed that same right. Why is that? You know, men, they hurt just as badly as we do. And unfortunately for them, they have to bottle it up because society says so, because men are supposed to be strong and they're supposed to be the providers and they're never supposed to show us uh, any sign of weakness or cry because that's that means that they're weak or, you know, they're whatever. And so I think it's important that we continue to pour into our, our men and allow them that same grace and that same safe space for them to be able to speak their truths. So on today's episode, um, I met this gentleman um, about a month and a half ago on Clubhouse. Um, his name is Dutch, aka Mario T. And we were in a room together, and I just remember we're I was we were all going around sharing our stories and our pain and etc. And I remember hearing Dutch's story and I was just like, wow. I mean, my heart, it just went out to him and I felt connected to him. And so I felt compelled to reach out to him on Instagram because I wanted us to have that connection because I felt like we shared so much in common, but so different. But then, you know, just being able to pour into him and allow him to have that same space to be able to talk about his truths. And so Today, uh, we're going to be talking with Dutch, and I'm just honored that he agreed to come onto the show. I think his story not only will inspire others like it did me, it will give hope to men out there that just looking for somebody to connect to that's of the same sex that they can say, you know what, man, if he was able to do it, I sure as hell can, can stand in my truths and speak up for what's right. And so without further ado, I want to introduce you to my friend Dutch. How are you, Dutch? Hi, guys. How's it going? Thanks, Fee, for having me on um, this platform. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity. I appreciate you from wanting to come onto my platform and speak so candidly and allow yourself this level of vulnerability that, you know, most people, they don't get to see. You know, most recently, um, I was listening to an episode of the Armchair Experts, which is a podcast that's hosted by Dax Shepard. And okay. since I'm a big, huge royalist, you know, I had to tune into this episode because it was about Prince Harry. And, you know, because I was a royalist, I followed his entire life, you know, on the television because that's just what you do. And right. so he was speaking about mental health, the importance of having good mental health and, you know, speaking about his own mental health struggles. And I thought it was amazing because we don't get to hear those stories. And when we do, we usually kind of glance over them and, and keep moving. But then, you know, another person who came to mind, too, was DMX. 
and, you know, how raw and vulnerable that man was and, and him being able to speak in his troops, God rest his soul, um, being able to speak into his troops because he had some things that happened to him that I was just like, are you kidding me? But, you know, oftentimes with, um, you know, people that are in the entertainment industry, sometimes they, you know, they've gone through some really fucked up shit. And that's probably the reason why they're so creative. Unfortunately, you know, it, it happens that way. So um, I just wanted to, you know, talk to you and ask you this, this first question. What happened Absolutely. to you? What happened to you? Um, well, my story could probably be a bestseller. Um, I've been told quite often. Um, so since the age of seven, um, I, I actually grew up in, in Jamaica, so I'm not from the United States. Um, I came here to the United States when I was 18. But to go back, yeah, um, my mom left Jamaica to, um, you know, give me a chance or give us a chance at a better life. So she left me at the age of seven with my dad. And, you know, you think as a child that, you know, your parents are there to protect you and and teach you, you know, the do's and the don'ts. But my dad was a different story. And, um, you know, looking back and hearing, you know, what my mom told me, this started when she was, in fact, pregnant with me. Um, I tried to, to kill me a couple times, I think twice, while she was pregnant with me. Um, he pushed her down the stairs. And then he tried to kick her in the stomach. So I don't know if it was how he was brought up or whatever it may be. But um, when she left, she left me with my dad. And he tried, she tried to kill me 28 times. Yeah, 28 times. I don't think that's a number I'll ever forget um, as a child. Um, I remember waking up at night um, with a pillow full of blood just because of the unnecessary um, abuse, beating with pretty much anything he could find. A iron that you iron with, extension cords, tree limb, um, uh, a lumber, anything at all that he could have hit me with. You name it, I got hit with it. Um, it was just, it was really um, difficult for me as a kid at the age of seven, uh, dealing with that. I remember days my dad would take me to the beach and I couldn't swim at the time. So he would take me out into literally the middle of the ocean um, and leave me on the reef. And I would have to find my way back to the shore, shoreline, which was devastating enough for a child. I mean, think about going through that over and over and over. And I would have to take care of myself as far as um, providing for myself. And I was seven years old. And I was doing this not with a stranger. This was supposed to be my dad. So I remember times where 
he would take me into the middle of nowhere and and hold me off of a cliff by my feet to drop me and kill me. And I have no idea why he didn't. But I guess it was by the grace of God why I'm still here. I mean, it's some pretty graphic things that I dealt with. And then on top of that, I, I went to people, my other family members that I thought would protect me. And what I got was, oh, you're lying. Um, go sit down. You're hallucinating. You watch too much TV. You know, that kind of stuff. And then, so I started confiding in my uncle. And what happened next, I had no idea about. I had no idea it was going to happen. I had no idea what was going on. Remember, I was seven years old. My uncle started molesting me. And I mean, you know, he would tell you things like, oh, you know, keep this between us. This is our little secret, you know. Um, that kind of stuff, you know, as a, as a kid, you're hearing that from somebody that you look up to and you trust. What are you going to do as a kid? You don't have a choice but to listen and do as you're told. So that's what I did, you know, and that went on for years until I migrated to the United States. But my dad was just, I have no idea what it was. I was like his little slave if I could say that. Yeah, I was his little slave. I did everything at seven. At night, at nine o'clock, I was outside pulling weeds in the lawn, cooking dinner, washing the car, feeding the dog, having to wash my own clothes, um, iron my own clothes, do my homework, all of that stuff at the age of seven. I should not have, I should not be here. It's a miracle that I'm still here. I have no idea. Um, it got so bad that I pushed the, the abuse from my uncle to the back of my head where I tried to forget it. Like, I mean, look at that. I mean, as a kid, I went, I mean, it was just, I really have no idea how I was able to even stay alive. I ran away from home so many times. I can't even begin to tell you. I've slept on church rooftops. I've slept under bridges. <clears throat> I've slept in old beat up cars, um, you name it. You know, I've, I've eaten scraps out of garbage cans. I've done all of that. My life was not a normal life of a seven year old. And the hardest part of this was, um, I thought in the back of my head that my mom didn't care come to find out that was not the case. 
when my mom left me with my dad, her goal was to to get me here to the United States. So when she went to the embassy, she filed the paperwork and everything. And in the meantime, they were sending correspondence to my address in Jamaica for me to come to the embassy and do the interviews. I didn't know. We always thought that it was just a long process. You know, I had no idea we were getting these kind of correspondence, AKA mail. Um, I had no idea until I became, until I reached the age of 18. You know, I said, you know what? I called my mom and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go to the embassy and see what's going on. When I got there, the lady looked at me and she was like, wait a minute, we've sent you numerous mail correspondence in regards to you coming and doing your interviews so that you could, so that I could be here in the US. They said they sent about 10 to 15 different correspondence over, uh, um, I think it's a seven to eight year time frame. My dad was taking the mail and destroying them behind my back and not saying a thing. Um, I was shocked to say the least. I couldn't believe it. If I hadn't taken the opportunity to go to the embassy myself, I probably wouldn't be here in the United States or alive. I'm pretty sure I'd probably be dead by now, to be honest with you. It got so bad of um, the abuse from my dad, the constant beating for no reason. You know, I would, I remember one day, like, I got beat so bad, my face was swollen beyond recognition. I couldn't even tell who I was at the time. Um, I didn't go to school for almost two weeks. And um, I couldn't see out of um, one of my eyes. I couldn't see out, see out of at all. And the other eye, I could barely see out of it. So um, I remember my dad coaching me and telling me, hey, if anybody asks you what happened to your face, you tell them you were standing in front of the door and the wind came by and the door hit you in your face and you didn't realize or you didn't see the door coming. So anyway, we went to the to the guidance counselor at my school at the time. And she saw me and she was trying to, you know, she was trying to communicate with me and trying to find out what's going on without basically asking me in front of my dad. <laughs> That only made it worse because they then told him what I told them. So can you imagine this? I'm a, a child that's being abused by his dad and his uncle. And I go to this guidance counselor with my dad, right? And you think, okay, yeah, you're gonna get the help you need. No, it made it worse. On my way home, Sorry. Take the time. Um, take all the time you need, my dear. Yeah, on my way home. 
my dad opened the door and pushed me out on the highway, put the car moving. I think I was about nine at this time when this happened. I didn't know what to do, I was lost. I was so lost. <laughs> when I hit the pavement, I jumped up so fast and I just started running the other direction. I didn't know what to do. That night I slept in a junkyard in a car, nine years old. That's not something that I envisioned for myself at nine. I didn't have the normal, I was, I, you know, I became so secluded from everyone. I, uh, I started pulling my electronics apart, my television, my radio, um, my games, just different things. I started trying to entertain myself. And in that process, I discovered I had a gift. And that gift was a photogenic memory. So I could see things once and remember them to a T without taking a picture or writing anything down or anything of that sort. And um, in Jamaica, they have this test. It's almost like a, a SAT test, but it places you into high schools and it, and based on your grade, you get placed in, you know, different prestigious high schools in Jamaica. Well, because of everything I was dealing with, that didn't happen. I mean, I failed with flying colors. I fell asleep in the examination room because I couldn't sleep at night, you know. I had to try to keep myself up because I had concussions from the continuous beatings that I would get nightly for no reason. My dad was an alcoholic. He would just come home and just beat you for no reason. Absolutely none. I remember when before my mom left, my mom used to travel a lot. We had a vacation home in the Cayman Islands, so we used to go there quite often. And she left one weekend and I didn't go with her because I was going to spend that weekend with my dad. She left on a Friday. And she communicated with my dad, hey, make sure you go and pick him up, you know. Um, I didn't I didn't put him on the bus today because I figured you'd be able to go and pick him up. School was over at two, three o'clock. No dad. Four o'clock. No dad. Five o'clock. No dad. Six o'clock. No dad. Six thirty. The the maintenance guy for the school was closing up, and he saw me, and he's like, "Where are your parents?" And of course, as a kid, I'm gonna be like, "Well, they're supposed to be here any minute." Of course, I'm gonna say any minute. 
Well, nobody showed up. Luckily, he was nice enough to invite me to his house. Uh, it was an all-Catholic school. And his wife was a teacher, and they gave me a bath. They fed me. They washed my uniform, um, hung it up, called the police station, got a hold of my dad. And you know what his excuse was? He forgot. He thought my mom was going to pick me up. And the things that I went through was just unbelievable. The stories that I have, if I begin to even tell you the half of it, you, you wouldn't even understand it. Like why, why put a child through all that pain? So um, when I finally came here to the United States, you know, um, I totally, I didn't even remember that I got molested by my uncle. That's how many times it happened that I pushed it so far into the back of my brain that I forgot. And then I started having nightmares. I'm so sorry, honey, that you had, you had to experience that. Um, wow. That's why I tell people that when you have kids, or even if you don't have kids, well, you have to pay attention. Whether it is your, your child or your nephew or your niece or cousin or whatever, the signs are there. You have to listen. You know, it's like when you're watching a movie and, you know, there's a scene where the child comes in and they're like, oh, there's a monster in my room. And the parent looks at the kid and says, oh, no. You're just hallucinating. You're dreaming. It's just, it's just your imagination. Well, let me tell you, it's not. That that ghost or that monster or whatever it is that they're telling you about, it's real. They're calling it a monster because they don't know what it really is. They're calling it what they think it is based on the television shows that they watch. So they're not going to tell you, oh, my uncle is molesting me. As a child, you don't know what that is. So you can't really expect the kid to come out and say, oh, I'm being abused by such and such. They have no idea what that is. We have zero idea. If we're not taught about that stuff, then how do you expect us to know as kids? It's hard for kids going through hurt and trauma like this to open up to anyone and then when you open up to somebody that you think you trust that's the person that then takes advantage of that situation it's not a joke it's not a nice feeling 
it's degrading. I thought nobody loved me. I thought, I thought to myself to kill myself a few times because the beating got so bad. And one night something happened. So in Jamaica, um, your parents are not going to go to jail for abusing you, beating you, or whatever. They don't really care about that there. I remember one night I was next door across the street, literally. It's about 10 steps. And I think it was about 7.30 and I, my dad came home. I think I had just turned 17, 16 or 17. And I walk, was walking across the street to my house and I got to the gate and my dad met me at the gate and he punched me. And I, I reached a breaking point. I didn't care what happened after that. So all I can remember is what I was told that happened after. He punched me. I fell. I hit my head on the side of the sidewalk, almost lost my eye. I got up. He was really drunk at the time. I got up, I grabbed him, and I punched him so hard. He fell down on the ground, apparently, and I picked up a huge rock to drop it on his head. I was 17. I think I had had enough. And I figured at that point, it's either him or myself. And my neighbor ran across the street. And luckily enough, um, subdued me and the rock fell by the side of my dad's foot. So I was inches away from killing him. This, this stuff is real. And this is the reason why I wanted us to have this conversation because, you know, like I said, we, we hear about all the stories of women in trauma, but we don't hear about the stories of men that experience trauma and what that does to, to you know, men. You know, it's, it's bad enough that you're, you're bred to not, you know, show emotions you're bred to, to you know, be the workhorse of the family, bring home the bacon, you know, the provider, be the pillar of strength 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's not right. Because like I said at the beginning of the show, you know, men aren't, men aren't allowed to show their emotions. Whereas as women, it's allowed and acceptable. Why isn't that the case for men? You know, and a lot of it is because of stereotypes and you know, oh, you know, you show emotion. You're you're not a man. You're a wuss. You're a punk. You're this. You're that and the other. And that is farthest from the truth. I think some of the bravest people that I come across, you know, not just women, but men, men like you, I think it's bravery. It shows great strength that you're able to be so raw and and be and be filled with emotion 
that makes you a better, well-rounded individual in my case. And, you know, my wife, you know, um, we've been together for 11 years. And before I met her, I was not an emotional person because as a kid growing up and going through all that I went through, I had to toughen up. I never showed emotions like I am right now. I was not an emotional person. You know, I just used to see things and I would have no reaction because unfortunately, with everything that I've been through, that's what it taught me to do was to not show any emotions for anything. I thought I was heartless. I couldn't love anyone. I couldn't be in a steady relationship. I didn't love myself for a long time. And then when I met my wife, I don't know, something just changed. And I became this, this man. I thought I was a man before, but I wasn't. I became this man and I think it was maybe a year, maybe two years ago. I mentioned that I was abused by my uncle. And still, my aunts and my other uncles, the first thing that came out of their mouth was, you have to let it go. You have to move on. It's time for you to move on. It's been too long. Why Why do people feel like that they get the right to tell you when it times up? That's like, you know, going to a funeral for one of your loved ones and somebody in the audience stands up as you're eulogizing your loved one and they and them saying, well, what about my loved one? My loved one passed away, too. And it's like yeah. no one gives anyone the right to say, oh, just give it a rest. Oh, get over it. And, and it's like. It's easier for somebody that hasn't experienced trauma like ours to say that. And it's only when they went through trauma themselves that they realized the magnitude of them saying what they said and how wrong they were for that. Mm -hmm. It's what people don't understand is that kids look up to adults. You know, they look up to us for leadership they look up to us to tell them hey what's right from what's not wrong what what's from what's wrong and here i am thinking that was the case but that wasn't the case you know actually i remember another incident i remember one day because i my dad run track for jamaica so i have this athletic gene that I inherited from him, which I think was probably the only good thing that I inherited from him, to be honest with you. And I, I have about two rooms filled with trophies and awards and different things. And I remember I came home from a track meet and I was, I think I was dancing. Um, on the porch in Jamaica, we call it a veranda, okay? But it's it's really a porch. 
I was dancing to a Michael Jackson song and I was spinning in circles and I remember I got so dizzy and I fell and I busted my chin wide open. Like there was just blood everywhere. So I had to call my dad, he had to leave work um, extra early, which really didn't matter because he was the CEO of the company. So he comes home, uh, takes me to the doctor, you know, I got, I think, 12 stitches. And then um, um, on my way home, he asked me what was going on, what happened. I got beat so bad, my stitches reopened. And I had to use duct tape and glue to seal it back. He would not take me back to the to the doctor because he know he he knew at that point if he did, he would have gotten in trouble, but not trouble like you would have gotten in trouble here in the United States. But I got beat so bad, there was blood all over the car after he was done. And then he turned around and told me to clean it up. So I've been through the ringer quite a bit. Yes, you have, my friend. Yeah. So where, so my next question is, where do you find your strength? Because obviously you've been through so much and I, I, it's like every, every time you, you mention a a different incident, you know, I didn't think my heart could sink any lower, but it did. My heart sank for you. So with everything that you've gone through in life, where do you find your strength? Well, as a kid growing up, I found my strength through. Sorry, my wife just got home. Um, I find my strength through my um, my wife. I find my strength through the dream that I had of being with my mom again, you know, because I remember the good times that I had with my mom growing up. And that's what I hung on to. Um, but as I've gotten older and I told my story about getting being molested by my uncle, I have found my strength through my wife and my brother. And this is going to sound crazy to you. The one person that... I looked to for my strength growing up as a kid was the person who wasn't there for me in the end as far as being there for me, lifting me up and telling me it's okay. In fact, my my own mother said to me, she was one of the people who also said, I should move on. It's time. I could not believe it. The one person I expected to hear something different from when I told about my uncle molesting me. I think this happened two years ago is when I finally shared this with anyone. And those were 
some of the first words that came out of her mouth. Well, it's time for you to move on. You've been hurting long enough. It's time for you to move on. Like, I was so shocked. You know, people need to realize that there's no time limit on how long you you hurt or you know, how long you allow yourself to heal. And, you know, and I'm, I'm reading this book right now. It's called, it, it, ironically enough, it's called What Happened to You? And it's a book by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. And they talk about um, the, the effects of trauma on the brain. And when you're a kid, you know, since you haven't yet developed the language around being able to articulate when something has happened to you, it gets stored in your brain. And, you know, and oftentimes a lot of these things, they come to the forefront of your brain as an adult. And so it's almost like you're reliving that trauma all over again because you didn't get a chance to to really deal with it as you were growing up. And, you know, and so. You know, first off, I want to say I'm sorry that your mother, she responded the way that she did to you. Because, like you said, she was the one person that you wanted so badly to be in your corner and to be there to be a part of your support team. And for her to say it's time for you to let it go. It's like, you know, again, it's again, it's like reliving that trauma all over again. Yeah, it, it, it was it. It was pretty hard because I'll share something else with you guys. Um, I think on my 13th birthday, my mom came to Jamaica and visited. And I told her all the things that was going on with my dad. You know, she could see it. She could see my face. She could see the disfiguration in my face at the time, you know. Um, and I had missed my mom so much at 13, <laughs> at 13, I asked my mom to give me a bath. Because I remember her giving me baths as a kid. You just wanted her love, her Undying love. Yep. So when you see certain people out there with a smile and you're going about their day, it's okay to say something nice. It's okay to do something nice. Hey, good morning. Hope you're having a great day because you really don't know what that person is really dealing with. Sometimes people just want somebody to talk to. Yeah. I've never had that. Oftentimes, you know, we just want to be heard. We want to be validated. We want to feel like that somebody cares and and wants to be a part of that journey. And, you know, it sounds like from what I've heard from you, it sounds like your wife was that person for you. Um, you know, Prince Harry is the same way. When he was on this podcast and he's talking about his mental health struggles, you know, most people thought, well, for him to finally get on with it and, you know, move about his life the way he has, they thought, well, oh, Prince Charles or even his brother, Prince William, was responsible for getting him to where he is right now. And he said it wasn't. It was his wife. His wife, she could recognize, she recognized the signs. 
and and told him that he needs to work on his mental health. And that's something to be said. And it takes a special kind of person to come into our lives to recognize our pain, validate our pain, and then more importantly, help us to to create the foundation work so that we can heal from it. Because for me, you know, when I was growing up, uh, there was a few people that um, they showed me just the, the slightest bit of tenderness and kindness that even to this day, I still remember. And, you know, it's, I was able to reconnect with one of them. Um, there's a woman in my neighborhood who um, she had a daughter that was a couple of years older than I was. And her and I used to hang out and she cared for me like I was her kid. She'd style my hair or she would, you know, make like little outfits or something for me. Um, you know, her daughter would always give me like her, her, the clothing that she used to wear that she had grown out of. I mean, she treated me like I was one of her kids. And, and to me, even to this day, I still remember those things. And, you know, it was only recently that we reconnected and I told her about all, everything that I had gone through. And she was just like, I'm so sorry that you went through all of that, but I'm so proud of you for who you've become. And oftentimes we just want, we just want to be able to feel like we can reach into someone else to be inspired by. And, you know, my husband, he's my, he's my happy place. You know, he allows me to be this crazy mixed up person that I am and, and, and know that, yeah, I come with a lot of emotional baggage, but he's been that person that has been there constantly working side by side with me because he sees all of the good in me. And that's what your wife saw in you. And that's what Megan saw in Prince Harry. It saw all the good in you. And that's what DMX's wife saw in him. So be behind all the, the baggage and the hurt and the pain. There's a beautiful person that's just waiting to, to just come out and to live again. And you know, like I said, again, it's one of these things that, you know, as we're, we're having all of these good conversations around mental health, that it's important that we hear stories like yours, Dutch, because that just goes back, that just goes to show you that just because a person, like you says, walking around with a smile on their face, or they might be posting these amazing pictures on their social media accounts, just because they look like they've got it all together, most of the time, you know, they're just they're trying to convince themselves because they're dealing with something that most people probably don't have the fortitude to be able to understand or want to understand. Exactly. Yeah. And so for me, you know, this will be my lifelong crusade. Every chance I get, I will be standing up for mental health and making sure people understand that when when a victim comes forth, whether it's a child or an adult, we need to believe our victims. And especially when it comes down to our youth, we need to start recognizing the signs because the signs are very telltale. And, you know, if somebody in my neighborhood had looked back at my sister and I, they would have realized exactly what the heck was going on in our, in, in our household. I mean, it was obvious to people that there was something amiss, but, you know, I grew up in a generation where, you know, nobody wanted to air their dirty laundry. So even if you knew something was going on in someone's household, you just really kept your mouth shut. 
Mm-hmm. And we have to stop normalizing that kind of behavior because you know, you, you keep looking at the news nowadays and you're hearing about all these stories. You know, you hear about the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world that's getting away with molesting girls. And, you know, women are being taken advantage of and men are being taken advantage of. And we've got a lot of traumatized people walking around here. So if we expect our youth to do better, we've got to take care of the adults. We have to heal the traumatized adults that we have walking around out here so that we can reach back and and look at the younger generation so that we can be more aware of when something's amiss and when something's just, you know, just normal kid behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I tell you what, one of the things I used to do was I was uh, uh, a clinger to my uncle. Well, yeah, you you were sympathizing with your attacker. Exactly. You know, there's lots of signs like bedwetting, mm-hmm. you know, reclusiveness, rebellion, mm-hmm. anger, promiscuity. Yeah. I mean, you look at all of those things and you, you and it's real obvious to, to, you know, of course, you and I that, you know, something's amiss. Why isn't everybody else paying attention to it? You know, I think we get so caught up into our daily routine that we tend to walk around with these blinders. Like, you know, we don't care about anybody else and we only care about ourselves. And my wife will tell you, you know, I get taken advantage of all the time. Because no matter how bad I think a person is or how bad a person can be or could be, for some strange reason, I have no clue why, but I always sympathize. And I'm, I'm such a giving person. You know, my wife is always telling me, you're too giving, you're too kind, you're too nice. You're, what you're doing, Dutch, is you're doing for others the way that you wish others had done for you. Yeah. It's a way for you to regain what you missed, what you lacked by giving to others. And, you know, oftentimes we as victims, we become people pleasers. We feel like it's more gratifying for us to give and do to, for others than it is to do for ourselves. And thinking that somehow or another that by us doing for others, then that's going to make us feel like we got something. Yeah. I owe my life to my wife, believe it or not, because I find strength in her every day. You know, she, she went through an abusive relationship herself. So, you know, when we met each other, we totally hit it off right there and then, but, You know, coming from where I came from and seeing the things that I saw and the things that I went through, you know, like I said, I I put my wife through a lot of bad days, you know. It wasn't something that I did intentionally. It's just something that I grew up in and I found myself like looking for love constantly from the next person. 
Well, right. you got to understand where that came from, though, because yeah. you didn't have a lot of people nurturing and loving you as a child. That's why you're constantly searching for more and more, you know, yeah. because, I mean, I'm the same way. And, you know, I, my husband will tell you firsthand, I've put him through some hell, but he still remains vigilant and standing by my side because, again, you know, our partners, they see the beauty in us. They don't see the, the ugly, icky side that that we're dealing with. They see the beautiful part of parts of us. And that's why they stay, because yeah. they know the, the potential for us to be great is there. We're on the, the verge of a of a breakthrough and we're just trying to clear our house and get ourselves in order in order to do that. I think we're too as 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 a people, you know especially black and brown people, we're too quick to be so judgmental of our own kind. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, was in a room, I was in a room and I was like, you know, you know, if you see people, I was in a room in clubhouse and I'm like, you know, if you see somebody today, you know, do something nice, hold the door, you know, buy a sandwich for a homeless person or whatever it may be. Oh my God, I got a touch. Oh, you shouldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't be so kind to these people. I'm like, really? Wait, why? They don't even realize then, that they are they themselves is in the blink of an eye can be those people. Exactly. You know, and I'll leave with this, you know, um as men, we we think that we're if we cry and we show emotions that we won't be looked at as an alpha male. Says who says that? Who came up with that rule? That's not true. Cry if you want to cry. Show your emotions. You know, let it all out. It's okay to cry from time to time. For the longest time, I didn't think it was okay. I think it was something bad to do. But I've, as you guys have heard, you know, over the almost hour that I've been on here, the uh, I don't have a problem showing my emotions. It's okay. I don't care whoever wants to judge me or whatever. It's fine. It's That's my life to live. And I'm telling you, it's okay to cry. It's okay to share your feelings. It's okay to talk about your hurt. Because that's how you're going to heal. You know, I'm 40 years old. Two years ago at 38 is when I told anyone about my uncle molesting me. 38 years old. This happened from the age of seven until now. I mean, from seven until, I think, uh, 15, 16, somewhere around there. But I never told anybody about this because I was so afraid of being judged. And as people, as husbands, brothers, sisters, uncles, nieces, whatever family member you may be, Stop being so judgmental of your own people. 
we look, you know, as a, as a kid, we look up to our family members and adults for guidance. You know, if there's something wrong, like, for instance, my dog. Like, he's never gone a day without either one of us. He can't speak. But I'm with him all the time. So when there's something wrong with him and he does something, I know immediately what he wants. You know, he starts pacing around. He can't tell me, hey, dad, I need to go to the bathroom. I know he needs to go to the bathroom. So look for those telltale signs when the kid is trying to tell you something. Listen, don't judge them. Don't turn them away. Don't turn your backs on them. Because that could mean life or death for that child. You are just an amazing person, Dutch. Um, I knew that from the moment I first met you. And just sitting here listening to you have this conversation has just solidified it even more so. Thank you so much for coming onto my stage and being so raw and vulnerable and just being able to speak your truth because you're going to help so many more men out there that's just looking for someone that understands that gets it. And they themselves will be able to, at some point, develop the courage to be able to speak their own truths because after all, it is their truth. No one else's. And you're right. We have to all stop judging each other. You know, everyone has a story. Some stories just happen to be a bit more tragic than others. And you just never know what a person has gone through. Because oftentimes when people are being very judgmental, mm -hmm. they're judging the present day you, not realizing the trials and tribulations it took for you to become present day you. Mm -hmm. And so people, especially, you know, black and brown people need to really stop being very judgmental. Yes. And just because you may not have experienced the same traumas that we've experienced does not give you the right to seem to think that somehow or another you are better than us. Yeah. You put your pants on one leg at a time. So get in line and get in order. Um. So I just want to say this is a couple of final tips. So, or not final tips, but just final words. It just goes to show you, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, where you've been. We all have these tragic stories that unfortunately it shapes us into the adults that we've become. Cause I mean, look at Prince Harry. He grew up in a life of privilege. Grew up, he's a certifiable prince. It's, you know, he had to live in the limelight through the death of his mother because of the paparazzi. You know, his parents went through a public divorce. You know, he himself went through some rebellious years and, you know, went into the military. And that was when he finally started to turn into the man that he's become today. And, you know, through his philanthropic efforts, following in the footsteps of Princess Diana, he realized that he had some mental health issues that he needs to deal with. And, yeah. you know, him meeting his wife helped change and save his life. Then you have DMX, who's a rapper. He has an autobiography about, about himself. 
And he had a show called The Soul of, of a Man, who was born in Baltimore, Maryland, beaten as a child. His aunt, his aunt, his aunt got him drunk at the age of six. You know, and he's stealing and hanging out with the wrong crowd. But he stand, he stood firm in who he was. And he didn't have a problem with sharing the not-so-good side of him. And that made him stronger because of that. And I just wish that more people would really stop being judgmental and take the time to honestly get to know somebody before you judge them. Because you never know what you may or may not have in common with them or what their story has been like. So with that being said, I'm going to close out with saying, remember to love yourself. Self-love is the best kind of love you'll ever receive. Remember to always take care of yourself first and foremost, because you can't take care of anything or anybody until you've made sure that you yourself is taken care of. Thank you again, Dutch, for your time, for sharing your story. You are an amazing, amazing man. And I just know that there's so many great things in store for you because you are your authentic self. And that is worth an applause. My name is Fee. Thank you for tuning in to The Healing Place. I hope you'll tune in, turn in soon. And um, just remember, be kind to yourself. Love yourself and love each other. Take care.